If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel, where we resume our study this morning. As you know, last week during our communion service, we took a break, but we resume this morning in Daniel chapter 5. We will finish the chapter this morning looking at this chapter where Daniel is dealing with a new uh, Babylonian king named Belshazzar. We began looking at this a couple of weeks ago and saw a little bit of the history of that. And, And this morning we're looking expressly at the writing on the wall, the vision that he had, and what that means and how, and how God used it. And it, it's interesting to me that in Daniel, it, you, have this, you have this picture of these exiled Jewish men in a country, in, a, in captivity. I mean, let's not, let's not water it down. They are slaves. And yet God is still calling them in their captivity, in their hardship, in their predicament, to be light, to be light to the world. In other words, God doesn't tell his people when it's hard and and, and life is going really badly, and let me tell you, if you've been enslaved, life is going pretty badly. God never says in those moments, take a break, don't be a light, don't be salt. No, 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 no. It's in those moments, those moments, when we are hard-pressed between the hammer and the anvil that we have an opportunity like never before to shine for the Lord. And so I love that Daniel, when we look at it, of course, so many of these stories are familiar, but we think of the word that keeps coming to my mind when, when I think about Daniel is adversity, is, is looking at this intense adversity that is constantly happening. Of course, when we get to the prophetic side of things, that's going to be a little bit of a different bear. But right now we're seeing how do we shine in adversity? How do we shine? How do we remain salty? And I mean that in a positive way. How do we remain salty in adversity? Well, let me tell you, what is the root of that? Well, in Daniel, it's clear. The root of that is trust in the Lord. How do I live my life that way? Trust in the Lord. Well, of course, Brad, it's trust in the Lord. And I know, and I know it seems so simple, doesn't it? But that's the place where I think we fail the most. Will we really trust God when we are feeling the weight of the hammer stroke fall? Can we be light? Well, Daniel could and did and was and is a worthy example for us to look at and say, hey, hopefully I can live my life that way, even in my most adverse, my most adverse times. Well, this morning we're looking specifically at Daniel chapter 5, verses 13 to 31. We will finish the chapter this morning. So if you would, follow along with me now as I read, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that, Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he, whom he would, he killed. 
whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him, and he was driven among the children, from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven." until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And, his, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, whose all are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me a moment. Father, your word is before us. It's been opened. And now, as we set our hearts before it, I pray that your spirit would continue to minister in our hearts, to see truth, to see places where we need to be transformed, and to grow in our understanding of you and of your word. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When we think about precious metals, I spent some time this week reading up on precious metals. Precious metals are, are desired. This is a little bit circular. Precious metals are desired because they're precious. They're, pre they're hard to come by. There's something unique about precious metals. But when it comes down to gold and silver and other types of metals, there's a process that happens, a weighing and measuring of these types of metals to gauge what type of precious metal they are, how genuine are they, how... How rich are they? When they, they weigh them, they're, they're one of the reasons they weigh them is because there is a density to gold that is not in other metals. Or there's a density uh, in, certain, in certain properties that cause this metal to be different, not just in appearance, but when we think of gold, gold doesn't rust, gold doesn't tarnish. Gold stays the same. It, it sets itself apart. When, you, when you're mining silver, it's really interesting. One writer I read said that silver, when you touch it, real silver, silver feels warm to the touch in its natural state. And so there's all these different weights and measures to see if this is real, to see if this is valuable, or to see if this is fake and worthless. In other words, they're weighed, they're measured to determine their value. It's an apt picture of what we see here as an example. But what God does in human hearts, God is about the business of weighing and measuring and showing our hearts to us. So letting our hearts be known so that we understand either we're fallen short or we, our hearts have been restored and renewed in Christ and now they are, they are of weight, they are of worth because Christ lives there. When we look at Daniel 5, it is all about divine weights and measures that reveal the heart of Belshazzar, a heart that is wanting. 
Daniel shows us that, that God takes these pagan kings. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He's now doing it with Belshazzar. And he takes their hearts and he puts them to the light of his word. He puts them to the light of his truth. And he's showing them, all this that you have is nothing. Because the one thing that is without value or worth is the very thing that you need value and worth the most. All the, all the riches, all the kingdoms, all the armies, all the clothes, all the wives, all those things come to nothing as Daniel makes it clear to Belshazzar, as he had done to Nebuchadnezzar, there is something far richer in life than having things, than amassing, uh, you know, warriors and conquering. But even in exile, I said this a while ago, even in exile, God uses his servant to proclaim his word to the world for transformation. Now, let's keep in mind, what was the exile? Well, if you know your Old Testament history, the exile was because Israel had failed, had fallen, had embraced idolatry as a nation. And so God had them exiled and taken out into captivity to the nations for a period of time. So yes, it was a judgment, but this is the beauty of Yahweh and the, and the detail with which he works. It was a judgment against his people. It becomes a boon to the world. Because when faithful people go out to the world and begin to proclaim the truth of Yahweh that they know from sacred scripture, while their nation is being punished, the other nations are being blessed. It is a powerful picture that in Daniel, Israel, Daniel doesn't do what Israel had done and turn, and turn into himself. He begins proclaiming God's truth to the nations. May we follow that example. Belshazzar is no stranger to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel makes that clear here, and that would have been a hard fact to hide anyway. But here's the problem. He was no stranger to it, but the lesson had not been received. Like Nebuchadnezzar before him, Belshazzar suffered from having too high a view of himself. We think that might sound a, a little overly simplistic, and, and perhaps it is, but it's the point. It really is the point that Belshazzar's opinion of himself was higher than that of God. And we think, well, that's terrible. Let me tell you, beloved of God, that is a common human problem. That is why idolatry flourishes in our lives. Because what are we saying? That my, my goal with this idol to get what I want from this idol is more important than God. Which is why I'm going to take that idol and I'm going to plop it on the throne and make that the highest good. Belshazzar, let's not, let's not wag our finger at him and think, how could you? I mean, he was a terrible person. But within his heart was the same issue as going on in the hearts of every human being ever born because there's an issue called sin that must be dealt with. Must be dealt with. And so that's what we see here. God sends, it's interesting, the, the pictures. When you start looking at how Daniel points us to Christ, there are some major ways he does, but... One interesting one is God sends this humble Jewish man into the court of one of the strongest uh, nations in the world, and this humble Jewish man is the only one who's got the answer for this man's problem. Several hundred years later, God will send God incarnate, a humble Jewish man, into the world, into a world that despised him, and he's the only one who had the solution to the problem that we have. Daniel is pointing us to Jesus in a very powerful way. This morning, with those thoughts in mind, there is one idea I want for us to see, and it's this. 
that God weighs and judges all who reject, who reject truth and wisdom. That God weighs and judges all who reject truth and wisdom. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is Ralph Davis. He was a teacher at, at, at uh, the seminary I attended, is a fabulous preacher and an excellent writer. Anytime there's a book out that he's got some, he's got one on Daniel, you can bet I'm going to be reading it. It's, it's good. He tells a story in that book of Joe Kennedy Jr., uh, brother to JFK, who was a fighter pilot in World War II. Well, Joe Jr. was slated to fly a mission on August the 12th, 1944, in what was called a PB Liberator, a PB-24 Liberator. The PB-24 Liberator was an interesting plane. It could be a pilot and a co-pilot were in there, but it was loaded to the gills with explosives so that when the pilot and co-pilot could bail out, it could be remotely controlled and detonated and hit its target and do massive damage. They were to fly in one of these planes. One of the mechanics came to Kennedy and said, you don't need to take this plane. You need to abort this mission. There's a faulty remote system in here, and this thing could explode over the smallest little thing. Radio static could set this thing off. You don't need to take this plane. He was very cavalier. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. About 6.20, somewhere over England, that plane exploded and the two men were killed. And it's, it's, was need, it's a needless tragedy, folks. You know why? Someone told them the truth and gave them wisdom and they rejected it. And they paid the price for it. When we are looking at God's truth and wisdom, we need to understand that story is kind of, kind of jarring, but spiritually, that is what's happening to a world that rejects the truth and wisdom of God. It is on its way to death. So this morning, as we're looking at this particular passage, this chapter, we're looking basically at God's scales of justice. We're looking at the scales of the justice of God at work. And when we look at God's weights and God's measures, they expose the hearts of humanity. That's what it's designed to do, is to expose human hearts. God, through his word and through uh, truth, he reveals truth by means of his word. And that same revelatory act reveals the heart of humanity. That's how when we look at scripture, we know we are somewhat looking into a mirror we're looking into the mirror of God's Word and asking, where is my heart in this? Where am I on this journey? Because that's exactly what God's justice does. It constantly is weighing and measuring the human heart. When we come to this, this opening paragraph that we've already had, the event was the first th uh, 12 verses. Now we're just getting a lot of recounting. But we see here, Daniel here, then Daniel was brought in before the king. That's a very, that sets, sets the context for this particular portion of the story. So that's the context. Now the focus is on Daniel. Daniel is brought in for the king. What's he, what's he brought in to do? Quite simply, to solve the problem. There's a problem, and Daniel is brought in to solve it because other people haven't been able to. So again, I've said this before, it bears repeating here. Why Daniel? Because he's God's man. This is God's message, and so God's message requires God's man to come and to make it known. So that's why Daniel is here. But I want us to hone in on how Belshazzar describes him here, because this is important. He says, The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. I'm going to stop right there. You are that Daniel, the one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Now, it's interesting. 
You might gloss over that and think Belshazzar didn't know who Daniel was. That would be a mistake. Belshazzar knew who Daniel was. In Daniel chapter 8, I think it's in verse 1 or 2, Daniel mentions being in Susa, which is the capital of the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. It is almost certain that Daniel was some at least low-level person in Belshazzar's court. He was known to Belshazzar. Belshazzar did this for another reason. He was being insulting. He was insulting Daniel by labeling him one of those exiles, one of those Judeans, one of those guys that my father captured and and had shipped here. He is, in a way, demeaning Daniel. He is despising this man who can help him. That is why a while ago when I made the connection about the only man that can help him is a humble, despised Jewish man. That can kind of point us to Christ. But he is intentionally choosing to demean this man. And why it's not clear, just because of his own view of himself. But he does say, and so then we, another way that we understand this is more of an insult, in verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, verse 16, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now I know that his mother told him that, but uh, Daniel's ministry to Nebuchadnezzar would not have been easily or quickly forgotten. So Belshazzar, in this moment of need, is still choosing to see himself as better than other people. He's still choosing to demean another human being for no reason. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, verse 15, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation. So, what what Daniel was brought in, we've acknowledged that Daniel can, can interpret, and so Daniel, with God's wisdom, can do what the wise men of the world cannot do. We are getting another look at the wisdom of God. It is able to do things that the wisdom of the world cannot do. That is why it's God's wisdom that was needed here. That's why it's God's wisdom that is needed in your and my life. Because it's only God's wisdom that directs us by the pathway of God's truth and that keeps us in fellowship with God. Through Christ, of course. So Daniel, with God's wisdom, can do what the wise men can. And it's very simple. We live in an age where the truth constantly wants to be challenged or people want to say that, that awful phrase, my truth, your truth. There's just truth. It's just truth. And a rejection of truth, of course, leads to a lack of wisdom. And we see that all around us. And then the rejection of wisdom or the rejection of truth, the lack of wisdom just leads into moral decay. Beloved, we don't have to look too hard in history to see when we reject truth, we reject wisdom, moral decay happens, societies collapse. This is a basic principle that Daniel is able to do this thing, to to solve this equation, to master this vision for one reason. He is connected with God's truth and God has equipped him specifically to do this. And we need, need not lose sight of that. What does Belshazzar do when he offers him the purple robe and and the golden chain and and the position of power? uh, It's not so much a reward as it is is a bribe. Here, I'll give you these things. Just do for me what I want you to do. Daniel, when we see his response, it tells you all you need to know really about how he felt toward Belshazzar. If you'll notice, he said, then Daniel, in verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. 
There was no, oh, king, live forever. Do you remember some of the flattery that he would do to Nebuchadnezzar? It, it gives us an indication there probably was some genuine warmth from Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. You get none of that here. You get a man dealing straightforward, no niceties, no trying to be nice, no trying to uh, sugarcoat or water this down. Daniel comes with a hammer. He comes with the hammer of God's truth. Why do you think he refuses the gifts? Let your gifts be for another. I, I know in my heart, it seems very clear to me that Daniel is making sure two things are happening here. The word of God is not for sale. You're not going to get the word out of me by giving me this world's goods. I'm either going to proclaim it or I'm not. But you know what else he's reminding Belshazzar? I'm not your man. I'm God's man. I'll not wear your robes. I'll not wear your chains. I'll not be in command with you. I am a man of Yahweh, and Yahweh is my king. I will go with Yahweh. I will wear his robe of righteousness. I will wear his chain of, of sonship. And I will live in his kingdom as he has determined. It's a beautiful thing. What a way to kick against the power of an evil nation by saying, you have nothing for me. You have nothing for me. Why was Daniel so willing to work with Nebuchadnezzar and not Belshazzar? Who can say? But clearly, clearly he is making a statement here. He's making the statement that God provides for Daniel, not Belshazzar. God directs Daniel's life, not Belshazzar. When, you, when we go from there, those first 13 verses, or those first uh, four, four, five verses, 13 through 17, are set in the stage. And what Daniel does uh, from the next paragraph, 18 to 23, is he begins recounting history. He's recounting history to Belshazzar, and he's it's, it's giving him a history lesson. He's telling him what he already knows, but he's doing this for a very specific reason. And I want us to get right off the bat, he wants to make something very, very clear. No one, everybody can agree that Nebuchadnezzar was a great king and a great man. I mean, in terms of being a king, I don't mean that morally. Daniel says to him, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, king, your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. What is he's telling you? Yes, Nebuchadnezzar was great, and all the things you saw that he had and everything that he amassed is attributed to God. God gave him the greatness. God gave him the glory. And he says here, he says, and, and whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Do you know what Daniel is kind of doing? He's almost describing a godlike characteristic of a king, that he had sovereignty in some senses. You know, in the human realm that he had sovereignty, that God is the one who gave him all that, who gave him that sovereignty, who gave him that greatness, who gave him those kingdoms, who gave him uh, the capacity to do what he did. Daniel is saying, if anything good and great was in Nebuchadnezzar, we need to say it's attributed to Yahweh. In the same way as I told you before that Jesus said to uh, Pilate, you would have no authority over me if it were not given you from above. He is reestablishing in this who is, who is great, who is worshipped, who is the sovereign one, not you, Belshazzar, and not Nebuchadnezzar. It is the Lord. It is Yahweh. Yahweh is the one. And when we look at this as he recounts it, I won't read all these, all these verses, but he, he goes talking about when the heart was lifted up and the spirit was hardened. 
so that he dealt proudly. He was taken down from his kingly throne. As he goes and he recounts the judgment laid on Nebuchadnezzar, we're, getting, we're understanding something there. We're beginning to realize that Nebuchadnezzar's judgment was a, a precursor to Belshazzar's judgment. Daniel is recounting it, saying, God showed you exactly what would happen if you lifted up your heart. And then here is the final nail in the coffin for him. It's when Daniel says, and you knew these things. You knew. You knew. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord. Beloved of God, that is just pure stupidity. And every human being is guilty of it from time to time. To know the truth. To know the good. To know the wise and the right. And to go against it anyway. God knows I've been guilty of that. And I'm sure you have too. But you know what else it shows us? It, a, you know what this should do? In, in a more merciful way, it should remind us to be patient with people. Uh, that's a slow work in people, right? I mean, uh, certainly a slow work in me. If I know, if I'm seeing how long the work is taken in my own heart, I can assume that at least some of you, maybe there's um, some, some of you who don't have this issue, but at least some of you in here realize that we've got to be patient with each other. Trans- transformation is a time-consuming process, and it's slow. This reminds us as we look at Belshazzar who saw these things happen, who knew all of this, that people are dull and slow and it takes time to learn lessons. God had given him time, so I'm not suggesting that we needed more time for Belshazzar. He'd been given time. He had an example before him. He rejected wise counsel and he'd been given time. His time was up. But let this be a lesson to us. Hey, maybe let's don't give up on people, right? don't so easily give up on people. Sometimes you have to walk away from something when it becomes clear to you that God is, or there's an obstacle there that is not going to be overcome by you. Because if we realize that people are dull and people are slow and it takes time, well, then we want to take time to let God's truth work. It's not always going to be fun or easy, but it's the honorable thing. As I said to you, Belshazzar knew all these things. He still lived arrogantly. He is the biblical definition of a fool. We said that the last time we looked at Daniel. That he is the biblical definition of a fool. Daniel is telling this king, it is Yahweh who holds all of life. All of life is Yahweh's. And you rejected it. Now you stand rejected. We see a very similar, sobering picture in the book of Revelation when we see the cycles of judgment happening. And we see the arrogance of people. I've mentioned this before when they pray for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from God's face of of justice and wrath. Now, can you imagine being so disconnected from God that you would choose death rather than look on the very one who could save you? Oh, beloved... That is the heart of a man apart or a woman apart from Christ. They're lost in their deadness. They need to be rescued. What happens from there, the history is recounted, the context has been set, the history is recounted, and then Daniel gives the judgment. And so when we look at verses 24 to 31, we understand 
This is why truth and wisdom and proclaiming truth are so vital because to reject God is to stand under judgment. To reject God is to stand under judgment. Daniel says, and I find this really fascinating, then from his presence, he's speaking about Yahweh, from God's presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. In other words, God directly, personally sent a hand, it looked like a human hand, that's what we're told, so that Belshazzar, remember, we put, he put it on the plastered wall that was in front of the candle so that the wall was a light and the message could be seen. God directly, personally sent a hand to directly give a direct and personal message to Belshazzar. It's, it's revelation. It's God's revelation. But in this case, it's a revelation that means judgment, as we know from the text. And we, we, as we're looking at this, and the writing was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, we were told earlier that as wise men could not interpret the message. Now, I want us to understand that doesn't mean that they didn't know the words. It is quite probable that they did know the words. The words, were, the words themselves are not the issue. It's why were the words put together the way that they were and what is the overarching message that they were written the way that they were and what we're supposed to take from that. I mean, because when a hand appears out of nowhere and writes four words on a wall, words that you're familiar with, you're going to wonder why those words and what the, what the uh, connection is with those. The words mene, mene, tekel, and parson, those are, are they're, they're weight words. They're words that talk about the measure of weight, right? And typically, there are measures of weight involved in monetary things. So you're talking about how much monetary value is by using a particular weight. And so when we look at the message, the message is simpled. The message is simple. It's numbered, weighed, and divided. That's literally what it says. Numbered, weighed, and divided. So when Daniel puts this together for King Belshazzar, here's what he's telling him. One, your kingdom has been numbered. Your days are numbered. This is the end of your kingdom. God has numbered the days of Babylon, and they are over. What is he reasserting again? uh, Yahweh, not Belshazzar, not Nebuchadnezzar. Yahweh is in control. Yahweh has determined when the kingdom will end, and your kingdom is done. It's over. You've lost it. God's ended it. That's the mene. Tekel gets to be a bit more personal. Of course, there's a double-fold application to it. You've been weighed, and you're wanting. In other words, you're not real gold. You're fool's gold. You have no value. You've been found worthless. He's saying this to Belshazzar. But he's also saying this about Babylon. Babylon put her worth in her capitals, in her beauty, in her conquerors, in her kings. And now God says, you've been weighed. You, Belshazzar, and you, Babylon, are wanting, so you're done. Parson, divided, or Paris, divided. What you have is lost to you, and I'm giving it to the Medes and the Persians. I'm dividing it out and taking it away from you. Interestingly enough, in the original language, the word Paris there, it kind of sounds like Persia too. And so you kind of got a, a double entendre of, of anticipating the Persian kingdom that's about to come and replace Babylon. I cannot express to you the horror of having to hear a prophet of God say that God directly sent you a message and this is what he says. You've been weighed, you've been found 
wanting and you are done. You are divided and your days are over. That is a message of judgment, but beloved of God, it is a message of judgment that we have to hear again and again and again because we live in a world just like Babylon that needs the message of truth and people need to understand. We even as believers need to be reminded what is the result of a godless, Christless life. It is that. And no better description than that. Weighed, wanting, and losing, divided. Well, we're told after this message, Belshazzar rewards Daniel as he said he would. It was an empty reward, though, as you see in the text. On that very night, Belshazzar's life was taken. In other words, this wasn't a judgment that had to materialize. It happened that night. It was done. When the handwriting was on the wall, Daniel announced it. The deed was done. God established his judgment that very night. When we look at Daniel and he gets these empty rewards, we need to remember Daniel's reward was never going to be monetary. It was never going to be monetary. Nebuchadnezzar gave him position and and gave him clout in, in Babylon, but Daniel's reward was never really ultimately going to be monetary. The reward was always that he faithfully executed the task of Yahweh, and Yahweh blessed him in the, way that Yah- in the only way that Yahweh can. Yahweh established him. Yahweh made him a faithful man. Yahweh rooted his heart more deeply in trust. And so that Daniel's reward was pleasing his Father in heaven. May that be said about each one of us. The very last verse it tells an interesting uh, detail about Darius the Mede that he received the kingdom being about 62 years old. What's interesting is, who is Darius? Uh, Extra biblical history says nothing of Darius the Mede, and so it kind of puts puts us in an interesting spot. Uh, Some say, some of the text criticism folks, those are people who look at the Bible and try to pick it apart. Some say he's just a made-up character, just somebody just Daniel just made up to make the story more interesting. Uh, some say that he was some sort of co-regent with Cyrus as being, you know, it was the Medo-Persian Empire, that he was a co-regent with Cyrus who died early on and then Cyrus eventually took over. Well, some people say that, oh, well, no, actually, he and Cyrus are, are the same person, which that, that, you can debunk that pretty easily because Daniel makes it clear. He adds this detail. He was 62 years old. Now, when we think about fictional writing in modern-day America, you would add details like that to make the story more believable. That's not how ancient writers wrote. When we see a specific age like that, that should alert us. This is a real guy. Who he is and may still remain a mystery, and I guess it always will. But really, it doesn't really matter who he was. He comes in, he is a part of the story, and then eventually Cyrus will take over. I happen to think that he was some sort of co-regent with Cyrus who died very early on, which is what it seems to be the case. Daniel is setting the stage, though, by mentioning him for the next chapter, of course, when Daniel has to deal with the den of lions. Beloved, we look here, we see judgment, we see truth, and what, what, the, the conclusion we must come to is this, that Christ is our only hope of substance on God's balances. That Christ, Christ is our only hope of substance on God's balances. In John chapter 15, verse 5, 
one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. Of course, Gospel, or John's Gospel is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Jesus makes the statement, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, he made this statement in the context of his call for people to abide in him. Abide in me and I and you and you will bear much fruit. That is, what he's saying is that we are designed, you and I, we're designed to get our worth, our meaning, and our substance from Christ. If apart from me you can do nothing, then we need Christ to do everything. And if, we're, if we can do nothing of value apart from Christ, beloved of God, what does that tell us of our value apart from Christ? That our value is only found in Christ. Our substance is only found in Christ. Our true humanity is only found in Christ. And so our calling and purpose, they're bound up in Christ. And as image bearers of God, our substance is the work of His Spirit in us. Belshazzar was wanting because his substance wasn't in Yahweh. The substance we need is nothing this world is ever going to provide. It comes through one man alone, one God alone, and his name is Jesus. That is the substance we need. Daniel is pointing us to that substance. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word, this ancient story of hands and writing on the wall, of visions. Oh, Father, it is so pertinent to who we are now, where we are now, what we do now, and how we live now. Steal these things in our hearts, Lord. Make them hard as iron in our hearts, Lord, that as we come and we live our lives, we live our lives before a watching world, that we keep before us the coming judgment of God, that we keep before us the reality that people need the truth, the truth, not a truth, not a palatable truth, but the truth, the one and only truth. God, thank you for your love for us and for your rescue. Be with us, I pray. Help us to stand firm on your truth, trusting in you and pushing into your wisdom and not away from it. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.